You know what that sound means. You know what time it is. It's time for the hazard hour. It's your boy Two Dogs. We got a little ditty to get into today, tribe. So let's go. government program that allows the National Security Agency to tap into the data banks of internet companies in search of foreign terrorists. Slides from a top-secret briefing detailing how the program works were obtained by the Washington Post. They list the companies, including Microsoft, Google, and Apple, and the data they provide. Everything from emails to chat rooms to videos. Under a court order which compels the companies to cooperate, Analysts working at computers in NSA headquarters at Fort Meade, Maryland, key in search terms designed to turn up suspicious internet communications among foreigners. The targets are overseas, but since much of the world's internet traffic flows through the U.S., the monitoring takes place on American soil. Director of National Intelligence James Clapper said PRISM cannot be used to intentionally target any U.S. citizen. But the key word is intentionally. Since, as everybody has experienced, you can get caught up in email chains that have nothing to do with you. The amount of data PRISM and other monitoring programs pick up, trillions of communications each year, is so vast, NSA is building this sprawling $2 billion facility in Utah just to store it all. But PRISM also scooped up at least one major terrorist, Najibullah Zazi. Without PRISM, Zazi might have pulled off a 2009 plot to plant backpack bombs on New York City subways. As he was mixing the explosives, he sent this email to Al-Qaeda bomb maker Rashid Raouf in Pakistan, saying he didn't know the right amounts to use and giving his phone number, intelligence that eventually led to his arrest. All the internet companies involved deny giving the government unlimited access to their users' accounts and insist they only turn over information in response to court orders. David. What's good, Atlanta? Yeah. We got a little ditty. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Hazard Hour. We live. We wanted to bring it out to y'all a little different. You know how we had to do it. You know we had to come out for y'all, so we did. Bring you out there in the open space, you heard? But we got a great show for you tonight. We gonna get all the way into it. We not gonna be playing around. We not gonna be playing no games. You see how I'm coming at them. Let's keep it going. Huh? 
Oh, shit. Let's go. software everything in your computer if you register online via the Microsoft network or Microsoft's BBS all of the details of your system unbeknownst to you will be uploaded to Microsoft talk about Big Brother this is it the original article that uh, blew this wide open appeared in computer reseller news over a year ago now just in case you think that that was a fluke and they didn't really put it in there and Cooper's full of it well folks it's not a fluke and as usual I'm certainly not full of it although sometimes I wish I were because it mean would mean we didn't have to pay any attention to all this crap but unfortunately it's true. Now, there it was a column called In Short in Information Week on page 88. This is Information Week magazine, May 22nd, 1995, right before the release. The column is called In Short, page 88, Information Week, May 22, 1995. Microsoft officials confirm that beta versions of Windows 95 include a small viral routine called Registration Wizard. <laughs> Wizard. It interrogates every system on a network gathering intelligence on what software is being run on which machine. It then creates a complete listing of both Microsoft's and competitors' products by machine, which it reports to Microsoft when customers sign up for Microsoft's network services. Due for launch later this year, customers must actively disable the routine if they don't want it to run. Now, if you're not a programmer, forget it. You would never know how to disable this routine. The implications of this action and the attitude of Microsoft to plan such an action beggars the imagination. And it may be just a very small implication of what is to come. Hmm. Now, folks, the way to get around it is don't use Microsoft Network. Don't register online with Microsoft. And don't ever call Microsoft's bulletin board. It's as simple as that. Or you can find yourself a programmer that knows how to disable this thing. You see, what's so dangerous about this, folks, is is uh, 
a fellow got hold of the beta test CD of Win 95 and he set up a packet sniffer between his serial port and the modem. So when you try out the free demo time on the Microsoft network, it transmits your entire directory structure in the background. That's what he found. This means that they have a list of every directory and potentially every file on your machine, your financial records, the set of books that you use to keep track of your business. Oh, yeah. All of your friends and relatives, their addresses and telephone numbers. Your newsletter mailing list of all the people you promised you would never give out their name and address. <laughs> it would not be difficult to have something like a file request from your system to theirs without you even knowing about it. This way they can get a hold of any juicy routines or files or papers or letters you've written, your books, and I don't mean books that you read, I mean your financial records, and claim them as their own if you don't have them copyrighted. <laughs> we go back to 29 CE, the common era, and we have Jesus teaching to the disciples. We don't have Paul around yet. What do you say um, before Passover? Jesus is teaching. We don't have Paul yet with his vision and so forth. So his particular teachings or letters are not included in what would eventually become the New Testament because those folks weren't writing, physically writing down letters, but they had the teachings from Jesus saying, hey, thou don't this, don't do that, and so forth. At that point of your decade-by-decade decade breakdown, would you say that the Christians today don't follow what Jesus taught originally to his early disciples? Uh, I would say absolutely, they don't. <laughs> uh, because Jesus taught his disciples that if they really wanted to um, uh, enter into the kingdom, they have to keep the law uh, that God had given to Moses. And uh, following Jesus did not mean believing in his death and resurrection well, in Jesus' ministry in, say, the year 29. It meant because he hadn't died and he hadn't been raised, and that isn't what he taught anyway. I mean, he taught that you have to keep the Jewish law. Um, and so, uh, so I, you know, there are, there, there are people today, there are Christians today who consider themselves uh, Jewish Christians, me Messianic Christians, or... Um, uh, you know, one group that's the best known group is Jews for Jesus, most of whom are not Jews, by the way, they're Gentiles <laughs> who, who, try to, who try to take on the Jewish law. And that's fine. But that, even that isn't what Jesus was all about. So um, I can go decade by decade if you want, but you're right. I mean, the in the 20s, uh, nothing like what Paul was thinking was even imagined. Uh, in the 30s, I don't think so. I think Paul probably converted three or four years after Jesus' death. Jesus died maybe 29, maybe 30, somewhere in there sometime. Paul probably converted three or four years later. He didn't invent Christianity. I mean, he didn't invent the idea that Jesus' death and resurrection could bring salvation because he was persecuting Christians who said that before he converted. And so people were saying that before. But Paul certainly developed it. 
uh, but we don't get, you know, we don't get any of the New Testament uh, at all, any of the writings we have in the New Testament until Paul starts writing his letters, and we don't get that till the 50s, <laughs> or maybe maybe 49, but 50, and so that changes everything too. All right, um, let's go in a different direction because I'm going to be touching on Paul prophecies, Paul's doctrines, Egyptomaniac stuff, you know. So ju just bear with me because I have right. to mumble them together. All right. Were the people who followed Jesus as Jews, are they the same sect of Jews who during the Kittus War considered Lucas Andreas or Lucas being um, a Messiah or the same sect of Jews who thought Simon Barcover was the Messiah or were these different sects or three different sects of Jews? So, um, early Judaism is very complicated, and um, the way I usually look at Judaism is that um, it's, it's, how do I put this? In, in comparison with modern Christianity, in modern Christianity, most Christians belong to some kind of denomination or other. I mean, they go to some kind of church, or they, mm -hmm. you know, they might be Episcopalian, they might be Roman Catholic, they might be Greek Orthodox, they might be Baptist, they might be Methodist. Like most everybody's something, and if they're not something, they say I'm independent. You know, so so but but most people were one of those. And Judaism wasn't like that. We tend to think it was because we hear about the scribe, we, we hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. And, you know, so we think about them like everybody's in one of these groups, the way the Christians are all in the denomination. And it actually wasn't like that. The um, in the time of Jesus, there are probably about six million Jews in the world um, is the usual estimate. Some, some, you know, it might be five, it might be seven. I don't know. But it's like around there, six million Jews. The largest of the sects that we know about were the Pharisees. Uh, we know about them, not just from the New Testament, but also from Josephus. Josephus tells us there were 6,000 of them, and that was the largest. So 6,000 out of 6 million, <laughs> that's not very much. Wow. And so so I don't think that Judaism is like, we, you know, like there's this sect, that's this sect, that sect. Um, what you have are most Jews who are just Jews. <laughs> they just got, they believe whatever they believe. And they, so, um, I would say, though, that the followers of Jesus would be characterized probably by modern scholars typically as apocalyptic Jews. In other words, they, it's not that they were in a sect that was called the apocalypticists, but they had these views that were fairly common in Jesus' day uh, among Jews that said that this world is controlled by forces of evil, that uh, God has relinquished control of this world now for some reason, that these forces of evil are in charge, and that's why there's so much pain, misery, and suffering in the world. I and mean, why is this such a rotten place? Because these forces of evil are in charge, but God's getting fed up, and he, and very soon he's going to intervene and destroy these forces of evil and set up a new kingdom here on earth. And Jesus was telling people, get ready because it's going to come. And if you're not ready, if you're not, if you haven't repented and you're not behaving well, you're going to be destroyed. And so I think Jesus' followers probably agreed with that. I think that some of the later revolutionary movements did not see it that way. Um, the uh, the revolts that happened in the in the, six, the late 60s and then in the 130s uh, that you're mentioning are um, were really uh, Jews who thought that there's a military political solution to the problem of Israel, not that God is going to intervene 
probably, but that, but that, in fact, we need to take up the sword and drive out these Romans. And so there was a kind of, it was, it was a very different view from the one that Jesus and his followers had. Okay. Um, let me do a follow-up to that question. Who do you think fits um, the Jesus of the Bible, historically speaking? Who is there a character in history that you'd be like, eh, it, it possibly could be this guy? Um, you mean apart from Jesus himself? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. There are a lot of people like Jesus who were apocalyptic prophets who said that um, they were, uh, you know, who, who believed that God's kingdom was coming soon and people needed to repent or they're going to be destroyed. John the Baptist thought that. The uh, members of the Essene community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, they thought that. Many Pharisees thought that, basically. Um, but I, I don't think there's another person who could be Jesus. I mean, it's kind of like saying, you know, uh, who, who do you think Trump really was? Was he, uh, you know, was he so-and-so? <laughs> no, he was Trump. <laughs> you know what? Um, you're right. I worded that question incorrectly. Okay. <laughs> what I should have said is, if outside of the New Testament, is there someone who is written about uh-huh. would fit who would be aligned with the biblical Jesus? Um, there are people that Josephus mentions. Josephus is this uh, first century uh, Jewish historian who, um, uh, about he, he's the one who gives us most of our information about what it was like in Israel in the first century, because he was from the first century. He lived, he's a very prominent figure in the first century, and he wrote these massive volumes about first century Judaism. So he describes some people. Uh, that have uh, similar views, who were um, who were outspoken prophets, who um, uh, roused opposition to the Romans, and who were killed as a result for saying that there was going to be a divine uh, intervention. Some of these he names, and there'll, there'll be differences from them in Jesus, but there's a guy named Thutis, for example. There's another guy that he calls the Egyptian. Um, there's another guy, actually, who's named Jesus. <laughs> so uh, this fellow lived about 40 years after Jesus of Nazareth in the, in the late 60s when there was this uprising against the Romans. His name was Jesus, of Anan, son of Ananias. And he was in Jerusalem telling people that they needed to repent because God's judgment was coming soon. And the leaders got fed up with him because the, the city was under siege. And this guy was a real troublemaker. And so they, they finally arrested him and flogged him within an inch of his life. But he kept doing it. He wouldn't shut up. And eventually the Romans were throwing uh, missiles into the city. They're like uh, catapulting rocks and things. And the guy got hit by a rock and it killed him. <laughs> but, but he was like, you know, the name Jesus was a common name. It was a very, it was a, like, it used, used to be when I was a kid, like every shortstop in the major leagues is named Jesus or second baseman. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. All right, let's move to prophecy for a second. In Zechariah 9.10, it talks about, um, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Um, was, did Jesus ever fulfill that prophecy as being a king over a kingdom with an army, dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth? No, he got crucified. <laughs> he, 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 didn't, he didn't take over other kingdoms. <laughs> the, the kingdom of Rome destroyed him <laughs> rather right. decisively. Yeah. All right. But, uh, the, the Jewish, the Christian thinking, of course, 
is that that's a, in traditional Christian thinking, that's his first coming. Uh, but he's coming back to finish the job. <laughs> but if you ask, did Jesus do that? No, he didn't do that. He didn't do anything the Messiah was supposed to do. All right. I got a Hair, which was burned directly into the image from the film plate and thus should always appear on top of the objects in the photograph appears behind the object in this scene clearly revealing a composite of two pictures into one someone apparently forgot to create a burn crater underneath the lunar module's 10,000 pound thrust engine despite the fact that during ground tests there was a real concern for the vehicle falling into the hole the engine created as it descended here is a norman rockwell depiction drawn just two years earlier based on the latest specifications and scientific data in these enlargements it looks as though the lunar module was simply placed there not even one speck of moon dust on the landing pod. As a result, all subsequent flights had to have the same discrepancy, which was explained away by the effect of no atmosphere. And what about stars? On the moon, with no atmosphere, they must have been quite a sight to behold. Yet there is seldom any mention of them, if ever, by any of the astronauts on any of the missions. Undoubtedly, creating a mural with all the constellations properly placed in the sky would have been virtually impossible to create accurately, much less realistically. A competent amateur astronomer would have been able to call attention to the slightest error in measurement. The answer? Not to talk about the stars. Ever. In their post-flight press conference, it was the only question to which Neil Armstrong responded with an absence of memory. When you looked up at the sky, could you actually see the stars and the solar corona in spite of the glare? We were never able to see stars from the lunar surface or on the daylight side of the moon by eye without looking through the optics. Uh, I don't recall during the period of time that we were photographing the solar corona what, uh, what stars we could see. I don't remember seeing any. Years later, though, Michael Collins would remember seeing the elusive stars and wrote about them in Expeditions to the Moon. It seems his memory improved the older he got. Why don't stars appear in any of the photographs? Simply because the proper, mostly closed exposure setting for the camera's iris set that way to compensate for the bright sunlight on the moon's surface completely diminished the faintness of relatively distant specks of diminutive light. This answer is true. It does not, however, explain why they never took any pictures of the stars by themselves, with an exposure setting perfect for them. While they took three automobiles to the moon, they never took a photographic telescope. Had they done so, they would have been able to see farther into the universe than had ever before been realized. If they had taken a telescope and were not actually on the moon, they would have had to concoct undiscovered galaxies that might one day prove to be non-existent. The cost of the three moon rovers in 21st century currency? Nearly $60 million each. Though they had fewer parts than a Jeep. Where was all this money going? Then there's the flag, blowing in the wind at least twice, 
on the atmosphereless moon. We can only guess that most of the missions were staged inside for fear of possible aerial or satellite reconnaissance from an unfriendly nation. The backpacks, designed for one-sixth gravity, must have had the cooling systems removed to allow for movement without falling over. With very near and hot studio lighting, that left one hot astronaut inside. Assuming that it was the astronauts inside, after all, their faces were always covered. The necessary mammoth amounts of air conditioning were probably responsible for the air current. Here the editor cuts to a still shot of the flag, just as the effect becomes noticeable. Here it is unchecked. This rare clip, attained decades ago, was never re-released with the inevitable increase in experience and scrutiny. To demonstrate one-sixth gravity, a bouncy, floaty feel to the astronauts' movements would be similarly achieved with relative simplicity. Slow motion. You are viewing the scenes as they aired more than 30 years ago. Now let's look at them with the speed doubled. It becomes discernible that they are, in fact, in Earth's gravity and are no more leaving the ground than they would on Earth. It is clear from these rarely seen color television pictures that the crew of Apollo 11 brought a high-resolution color video camera with them on their mission. Yet the only pictures broadcast live from the moon's surface were these from a low-definition black-and-white camera. In fact, the networks complained because in addition to this, they were forced to shoot the images second generation off of a projection TV of the technology of 30 years ago and were not even allowed to take a direct feed, which further degraded the quality and clarity of the images. Perhaps this was precisely what NASA and the federal government had in mind. After all, it was a first, regardless of where they were. Better to open up their debut mission with fuzzy pictures and numerous blackouts rather than show too much revealing detail of a false scene that was yet unproven. And finally, the element that seals their fate. Of all the footage of Apollo 11 requested from NASA over a five-year period, one gem was discovered just before the completion of this documentary. An old reel received by mistake. It contains the raw or unedited footage of the crew of Apollo 11, Michael Collins, Edwin Aldrin Jr. and Neil Armstrong, staging part of their mission for nearly an hour in living color, with exceptionally clear behind-the-scenes audio of conversations discussing the techniques used to achieve a disingenuous picture depicting the Earth at a distance in order to falsely demonstrate their far journey from it and their ability to survive passing through the Van Allen radiation belts. It cannot be misconstrued that this staging was done for some other reason prior to the mission, for the reel itself is slated and dated July 18th, 19th, and 20th, 1969, the very days of the mission when they were said to be approaching and achieving lunar orbit. Furthermore, it is apparent they are in genuine zero gravity aboard the actual spacecraft, necessary to convince the mass media of their authenticity, just not any further than Earth orbit, as you will see. In this never-before-seen or heard footage, not only is the radio conversation between the astronauts and Houston Control audible, 
There is a secondary, private conversation taking place between the crew and a third confidential party, prompting the astronauts with what to say, when to speak, and how to effectively manipulate the camera to achieve the desired misleading effect. NASA claims that the Houston transmissions were the only ones taking place with the astronauts. Listen now as Houston Control initiates a conversation with the crew, only to find them too preoccupied with the behind-the-scenes trickery to respond. Moments pass and the oversight is picked up on by the clandestine third party, who quickly prompts them with talk. Immediately, Neil Armstrong speaks. Again, the illusion they are attempting to create is the Earth at a distance to demonstrate their far journey from it and their ability to survive passing through the Van Allen radiation belts. Understand, too, that only about 20 seconds of this raw footage was ever broadcast to the public, and these conversations discussing their deception were believed to be private until now. Here they discuss that these television transmissions were in fact not broadcast live as everyone believed. They were first screened and edited for playback later. All right, Janine, we just wanted a narrative such a weekend when we get to playback we can sort of correlate what we're saying. Thank you very much. Here they discuss the fact that they have turned out the lights and have blocked out sunlight from entering the spacecraft through the other windows as to not cause any reflected light to fall onto the spacecraft's wall in the foreground. Okay, very good. Well, we shut out the sun coming in some of the other windows into the spacecraft, so uh, it's looking through a uh, the, uh, number one window and there isn't any uh, reflected light. The reason this was done is so that the truth of the matter would not be revealed. It is this. Though the federal government would have you believe that this is a view of Earth from a distance out of the spacecraft's window as it nears the moon, it is not. What they have ingeniously done is placed the camera at the back of the spacecraft and centered the lens on a circular window in the foreground, outside of which it is completely filled with the Earth in low orbit. The circumference of the window then appears to be the diameter of the Earth at a distance, with the darkened walls of the spacecraft appearing to be the blackness of space around it. That is why they wanted the interior dark and blocked out the sun from entering through the other windows. Here you can see the extruded window, probably two inches thick at the bottom. This is because the Earth's shine is coming in at a downward angle. It also causes the Earth to appear to be an irregularly shaped circle, for you are seeing the outside of the window at the bottom and the inside of the window at the top, which together form two different sized halves of a circle. Subsequently, this take was never used. As they perfected the shot, a crescent-shaped piece of black material was inset slightly into the window to create the illusion of the Earth's terminator line dividing night and day. It is uncannily convincing. During this segment, intended to be edited and played back later for the worldwide television audience, dated July 18, 1969, 
Neil Armstrong condemns himself as he states that he is 130,000 miles out, or halfway to the moon, as the NASA flight log also states on this date, when he is in reality in low Earth orbit of a few hundred miles. Roger, Houston, Apollo 11. Calling in from about 130,000 miles out. Here, during another segment, also intended to air after review, Neil Armstrong falsely explains to the viewers how the shot is attained by putting the camera's lens to the window's glass, as it would have to be if they were the claimed distance away from the Earth. We only have one uh, window that uh, has a view of the Earth, and it's filled up with a TV camera. If the window was completely filled up with a TV camera, as he stated, then an astronaut's arm would not be able to get between the camera and the window, as it obviously does here in this outtake. South America becomes invisible just off beyond the Terminator or inside the shadow. You can also notice how the astronaut operating the camera reacted to the mistake by attempting to pan away from it. This is a segment that they believed wasn't even being recorded, much less suitable for broadcast, for the lens was being zoomed out and the scene was being changed to that of an interior of the astronauts at work and apparently the stop button popped back up on the recorder without notice. Here is the diffused work light that they used to see camera controls, but not throw light onto the spacecraft's wall. Here they remove part of the crescent insert. Finally, the iris is opened up and you can see the real location of the camera and the very bright and near Earth out the window. Here is the slate for the 19th of July and the same shot of trickery on the 19th of July and then the 20th and the same misleading shot on the 20th. Later that evening, they were said to be walking on the moon how can this be when they were in Earth orbit only nine hours earlier and the moon is some three days journey away? Furthermore, if they genuinely went to the moon, why would they be faking any part of it? Why this trickery with the window? By faking being halfway to the moon, it becomes apparent that they did so because they could not even go halfway. It thus confirms that the stumbling block to their success was the lethal radiation of the Van Allen radiation belts. Since the same equipment was used on the subsequent missions in the 40 months that followed, none of them could have gone to the moon. They only increased their proficiency at staging them. When some TV viewers of the second manned mission to the moon telephoned the networks complaining that reruns of I Love Lucy were being interrupted, it became clear that for the taxpayers, once was enough. But it wasn't enough for the government and contractors. Billions of dollars of pure profit went with each return. How coincidental that the following mission would have the element of life and death jeopardy. Apollo 13. Now the public would take going to the moon more seriously and be reconnected with the drama. 
we now realize that perhaps the reason Neil Armstrong has never given an on-camera interview is because he doesn't want to lie anymore. What threats may have been made upon such honorable men or their families to possess their reluctant cooperation and later ill feelings towards perpetuating this still darkened hour in American history? NASA's highest ranking official Still smoking. We live. We live. Shit. Hey, 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 pass me that blood. Yeah. Hey, man, we gonna get all the way in tonight, though. I told you, man, we coming with that heat tonight, man. We ain't playing. Y'all need to stop playing with me. And it. And this information is out there, so it ain't me. So stand up and let's go. I need you to get amped in here. I need you to turn it up, because we're going to beat them up a couple more times, man. We're going to beat them up a couple more times, nah. You just let me do what I got to do. You heard? We got a little ditty to get into. Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. It's your boy, Two Dogs. It's the Hazard Hour. You know how we get into it. Man, I got a little ditty for you tonight. Shoot, man, I've been going round robin the whole night trying to give you a little dose of everything, little dose of this, little dose of that. What you think about the stuff that got brought up tonight? Some of that's some heavy hitters. Some of that's unrefutable. Some of that you can question. Some of that we can take to the debate field for show, for show. But one thing you got to know is that some of them come with receipts and some of them are going to be pretty hard to refute. Some of them are coming hardcore. But for the most part, Bill Cooper wasn't playing. Brother Garfield wasn't playing. Uh, that was Dr. Bill Ehrman who was talking uh, about the uh, Jesus Christ part, if you were if you were curious, that's Garfield. Uh, currently, right now, Garfield is doing a, a 20 for 20 scholarship. Um, pretty much interview of all the scholars of uh, biblical history, ancient history. I mean, it's pretty much a round robin. I really take my hat off to him. Uh, he's really going in deep with the scholarship. Not so much the debate anymore. I think he's transcended the debate field. And now he just wants the... Um, legitimacy of the facts themselves. It's not about the debate anymore. It's what 
is the consensus out there in modern scholarship from anthropology about all the facts. So he's bringing, he's bringing the heavy hitters. And this is something where as a community, we're just going to have to deal with it. The facts are the facts. These are the facts. So you got to get away from this. Oh, we can't trust the man. We can't trust the white man type stuff. These are the facts. You know what I mean? So stop parsing it to the point where you're losing the whole convo over skin and race. These are the facts. And you heard the facts tonight. So if you want to catch that, that again is 20 for 20 scholarship. That's uh, Brother Garfield. Um, I think he, um, well, I don't think I know. He's uh, He runs with the Dagger Squad. So if you're on YouTube, just type in Dagger Squad. You'll see it. Uh, a lot of good stuff on this. The 20 for 20. Uh, the other was Bill Cooper. Uh, Bill Cooper is a uh, conspiracy theorist. Uh, he actually got what we believe he got assassinated for talking that truth. So that's just one thing that comes with the territory. When you start talking that truth, uh, you know, things come to you. So make sure you handle yours and you always got that blicky do. You know what I'm saying? But either way... Um, Shoot, I don't know, man. I thought we was gonna go into the Kennedy, um, the Kennedy one, because I really want to crack that one. But uh, I like the um, alien stuff. I like the the Mars stuff. Um, we got a, a a a rover that landed on on Mars already. That's what's up. I think we're going to get into that as well once we get some more footage, once we get more things going on with that. Because even though I don't believe we landed on the moon, I definitely for sure think we can send little uh, rockets and, and um, little remote control cars and things like that. Our technology is dope right now. We could definitely accomplish that. But as far as sending flesh and blood through those Van Allen radiation belts, I, I, I don't believe it. I'm not a believer in that. So if somehow you can uh, show us, um, well, oh, check this. Send a rover, just like Curiosity, to the moon. And let's go ahead and take a picture of the landing site and all this stuff like that. So uh, if we got any contractors out there who want to go ahead and take that up, let's go ahead and get that popping. We need to see uh, the footage because we we actually had attempts to get that footage, but they were very grainy. You could not tell. Um, I've seen the pictures myself. They were not in good quality. Uh, some of the uh, measurements of the actual blips, as they were called, or whatever they're they're on there as, actually didn't even measure up spatially for what type of object should have been out there. So a lot of questions are still uh, being raised about those pictures. Uh, so it's not an open and shut case on those pictures. Um, but it's definitely something we could get into, definitely something we could talk about. Um, but you know we always going to be in uh, in for the discussion, uh, no matter how it's going to be or no matter what it's going to be. Shoot, you know how we do. We get it down all day long. You know I don't play. It's your boy Two Dogs. It's the hazard hour. You know what I mean? We talk about those things. You don't want to talk about them? We're going to talk about them here. Bump that. We'll, 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 we'll leave the table. And we're going to talk about it on the hazard hour, though. You better believe that. We want to know. We want to know why everyone's being so 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 quiet. We want to know what's good. What's the tea? What's a little bit? Just a little? Can I get a little? You know what I'm saying? Stop hating. Why you, you, you need to stop hating and stop participating. 
Yeah. Yeah, I told you we had a little ditty for you tonight. Here we getting all the way into it. I'm just trying to keep y'all entertained, trying to get it, trying to twist it, trying to get something new. Where we at? You know how we do in the city, man. You know how we do Atlanta. You know how we do. Stand up. Shit. Man, we've been out here for a minute. Shit, man, you know how it goes down, man. It's your boy, Two Dogs. This the Hazard Hour, where we take no prisoners. Fucking playing with you. Ain't nobody playing with you. Stop playing with me. Stop playing with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's your boy Two Dogs. It's the Hazard Hour. Appreciate y'all coming on by. Make sure you check me out on Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, you know how your boy Two Dogs gets down. Just type in Two Dogs. I'm sure I'm out there. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 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 tweet, tweet. Get at me. You know how we do. We bring the convo here. We ain't scared to talk about nothing. Peace. <laughs>